It's Friday. It's Friday. Gotta get down on Friday. Anyways, I will spare you guys. I'm not gonna hit the high notes, but uh, happy Friday. Happy Friday. September freaking 2nd. I, I'm kind of appalled at September 2nd just because it's been a very strange summer. Um, a politically active summer. Um, a rabies active summer for me involving the bats. Um, busy with, you know, wrapping up this program. The weather's been all over the place. Yeah, it's been a strange summer. And so I guess through all the uncertainty and chaos and strangeness, it flew by. Um, it didn't really feel like summer, but that's all right. You know, I, I probably would say late September through November is probably my like favorite time of the year. It gets a little bit cooler. The leaves change. And I am one of those people who really enjoys Halloween. Um, I enjoy the decorations. Like, I'd be okay if we got rid of Christmas, Easter, um, you know, uh, Thanksgiving, all those holidays. But I, I kind of do dig the, like, pumpkins and the, you know, uh, what, what are they called? Pumpkin spice lattes, all that jazz. I, I'm not going to lie. I, I'm a fan of this season. Now, it is a little weird when it's, like, August 10th and you're seeing pumpkins being sold at Target and, like, Halloween decorations. Like, I, I know we're a capitalist country, but, like, can't we get to, like, Labor Day first before we think about that? Who knows? I'm just becoming a curmudgeon old man here, but yeah, anyways, I should just start a new podcast where I rant about life. I have a lot of uh, a lot of rants I could do, but um, for today, I want to talk about a UN report out of China involving the Uyghur detention camps that is kind of basically discussing what we've known for years, but it is good. It's been released. It talks about crimes against humanity. And a lot of Uyghur rights groups are saying this is a little too little, a little too late, and I probably agree. So we'll talk about that at the end of the show. And first I want to start with uh, some updates in the mayhem at Mar-a-Lago, and then I want to kind of compare Hillary's emails versus Trump's classified documents and stuff related to that, and just kind of discuss all the revelations, because I haven't talked about Trump's email stuff really since the initial uh, raid on Mar-a-Lago or whatever you want to call it. I, I know some people on the left say, hey, it wasn't a raid. It's like, I know it wasn't a raid, but, you know, everyone's calling it that. And they did go in there. I don't know. Again, like I've said so many times, if we're going to get caught up on semantics, sue me. Like, there's bigger, bigger fish to fry here. So anyways, starting with the new revelations with the lovely classified documents that Trump brought as we know, the story has been changing from his side <laughs> quite frequently. And, you know, as we've talked about time and time again, he, he just likes to throw stuff at the wall and see what sticks. That's a very common strategy for Trump, kind of in about every aspect of his political life. <laughs> but it's also, in this case, I think made it quite difficult for some of his allies to actually keep up with him. Because let's be honest, if you keep changing the story... They have to keep shifting, spinning on TV, and that gets exhausting. And there's been some recent updates. I think it was on Tuesday that the Justice Department released photos of the documents that he took. And it's made it hard for some of his lies now to hold up. I think from the beginning of the entire Mar-a-Lago saga, if we want to call it that, my main concern has basically been that the Justice Department... If they are going to go after Trump, they need to do it well and not make any mistakes because basically if you mess this up or it's about something really milk toast, 
it's going to tarnish everything. It's going to radicalize his base and make matters just significantly worse. I think it was Ralph Waldo Emerson, maybe, who said something to the effect of, if you go after the king, you can't make any mistakes. And I think that was why some people like me think he should be prosecuted. <laughs> He's, he gets away with a lot of shit. But at the same time, we're like, this better be good because... Look, the Russia investigation, he was not just acquitted, right? It was not just vindication, as he said. But because Mueller couldn't actually prosecute and because he said there was not enough evidence to actually prosecute, it, it just became a talking point for the last four years. Russia hoax, all this jazz. And we don't want that again. So that aside, I do think the... Justice Department and the FBI have done a fairly good job this far of keeping up with Trump's strategy of throwing things at the wall and seeing what sticks. David Graham in The Atlantic write, I think it was yesterday, I want to say, he writes in quotes here, prosecutors dramatically swept away the most recent excuses from Trump and his allies, who have insisted that the former president cooperated with the government and acted in good faith. Any Anytime you see Trump in good faith in the same thing, probably not true. But anyways, uh, the it goes on in quotes, the filing provides evidence that Trump and his team not only didn't hand over classified materials, but actively sought to conceal them by misleading the FBI. Always good. And basically, from my understanding here, these revelations came after photos were released that Trump actually, or sorry, sorry, photos were actually released that show the documents that were at Mar-a-Lago. And the photos are not great for Trump because they show basically cover sheets with <laughs> bold letters red letters, so it's hard to miss, reading top secret. <laughs> and parts are crossed out, and it's just kind of funny because by looking at these photos, it's very obvious that they were classified. And it's also kind of funny because Trump's all about image and, you know, how he projects to the world. And, like, a photo of these documents that show you've been lying is kind of not great for you. And, you know, after seeing these photos, it's made it somewhat clear why the Justice Department received a warrant after Trump had not turned over the documents. And uh, yeah, I mean, you know, it's not like maybe the documents were, you know, just normal looking documents with no information on them, or there was no classified in bold red on them. <laughs> maybe Trump's vision's going bad. I, I don't know. But like, if I could tell they were classified by looking at the photos, you would assume even Trump could. So I will just add that this is going to make it difficult again, going back to that, for some of his allies to keep defending him. I know they will, but it's going to be more difficult. And Graham has a good point in this article. He writes in quotes here, Trump has long grasped the power of striking visuals to make an impression. And were he not on the receiving end, he might even appreciate the artfulness. Now only, not only has the Justice Department been prepared for Trump at each turn so far, but it's co-opted his methods. <laughs> and like I said, it's just funny. They are playing Trump at his own game. Let's make this an image, a spectacle. And uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think, you, you know, they say a picture is worth a thousand words. I think when you're going after Trump's lies, that's probably even more like a billion words. It'll be interesting to see how this goes. But again, I don't see Trump going to prison anytime soon. But it does seem like... Things are not, like, going <laughs> particularly well for him. He's been going on some pretty entertaining diatribes on Truth Social, which I still uh, have. And it's clear that he's desperate, angry, not thrilled. 
the GOP clearly wants to kind of keep distance from him going into the midterms because, you know, he's a bit of a toxic figure, to say it lightly. So, yeah, he he has to tread lightly, though he won't, but so does the GOP at this point. I, I will add, though, that I am a fan of Occam's razor, and I, I think it's important to kind of go back to this sometimes with this whole situation. I'm not still sure if he actually intended to do anything nefarious with other nations or anything with these documents. I could be wrong, but I don't know. I, I think there's two possibilities that would make more sense to me. One is that he likes having access to these documents because he can tell people at Mar-a-Lago when he's golfing about them. Basically, he likes the cloud of telling his golfing friends stories like, oh, I have papers on an affair Macron had. Or, you know, here's my love letters to Kim Jong-un. Or, you know, I, I have classified documents. You know, I, I, I think there's probably something there with that. It's still bad because they're classified documents. And as we know, Mar-a-Lago is not exactly a safe place to keep classified documents. Because apparently also, I forgot to mention this earlier, I should have, is that apparently the idea that he had them locked up in Mar-a-Lago is also not true from the reports. So, yeah, I mean, I would not say Mar-a-Lago is where I'd like to hear nation's uh, secrets are. And also, I guess, you know, as I'm just thinking now, this, this is problematic for our relationships with intelligence around the world. Um, we might lose some trust over this because will other nation's intelligence agents want to work with us if there's the fear that a president could hold on to documents that could jeopardize people around the world, some clandestine agents from other countries undercover. You know, there, there, is, there is the fear of that. Again, I don't know if Trump's that nefarious. I think he's more stupid than serious, <laughs> I guess. But it's still not good, and it, it, it does make us look stupid around the world. I, I do think that is very clear. Now, the second possibility to me is that he's not intelligent and... During the chaos after January 6th, when he finally realized, okay, I do have to leave, basically, he wanted to take documents that were either related to him or related to investigations into him, like maybe the Russia investigation. And he also was maybe convinced that he could declassify whatever he wanted, because it sounds like some of the crackpots in his orbit were telling him he could. So maybe by an act of grand illusion, stupidity, whatever... He just took them with him, and because of the chaos of leaving so abruptly, they fell under the cracks. Again, you do have to ask, why is he lying about them? But he lies about everything, so, you know, it's... it's the, the more I sit here and think about this, the more it's just like I'm going down... I'm being flushed down the toilet with his documents, basically. Like, th that's how this is. Is I, like, like, the deeper I think about this, the more of just a flush into oblivion it is for me. Because there's so many scenarios. Trump is a very hard guy to read. So I'm not going to speculate anymore. But before we move on to the next topic, I want to stay on this from another angle. I kind of want to just touch on the Hillary Clinton comparison with her emails and Trump's handling of these classified documents, or I guess I guess you could say theft of these classified documents. Um, I've seen a lot of people on the right say that, you know, Hillary got away with something similar or worse, and this is, again... A bias against Republicans. They're not being treated fairly by the justice system. I, you know, I would kind of argue that Trump's actually been treated quite fairly by the Justice Department over the years. 
the amount of like businesses and individuals that he's kind of taken advantage of and screwed uh, without any justice, I think is pretty telling about that. The things he did while in office, if I did, I would definitely go to jail. Now, this is not me saying Hillary is completely vindicated. Like, I, I do think she was careless, but two things can be true at once here. And so I will say off the bat that... Trump's case probably isn't that much worse than Hillary's, but the irony is that he signed a reactionary law after what she did that might have shot himself in the foot. I'll explain. So thinking back to the 2016 election, we have to remember that James Comey decided right before that it was not worth prosecuting Hillary for the whole email scandal after you know years and years of investigations. He released his decision right before the election, which was obviously criticized. Uh, he criticized her deeply. His report was not great for her, and it definitely did hurt her election chances. However, while he made this statement and it put her in a pretty bad light, he also chose not to prosecute, right? And from what I understand, or at least from how I'm understanding that whole situation, it seems like he kind of wanted to leave what she did up to the court of public opinion, which was the American people and the 2016 presidential election. And she lost. Now, I think she lost not because of just the emails, but because she was an awful candidate. Seemed condescending. And people were kind of sick of the Clintons and the Bushes, right? And I also think that at the time, a lot of, a lot of people, including herself, did not understand the amount of fervor and anger and populism that had been growing for years. But for this discussion, I will say that the Comey statements did hurt her a little bit. You know, it was a close election, so you have to wonder it was if this was released and Comey's basically like, it was bad, but we're not going to prosecute. Maybe some people are like, damn, do we want a president dealing with, like, doing this stuff with classified information? Of course, Trump's... <laughs> it's, I, I digress. But Adam Sir, Surer, sorry, has a good piece on this, and he writes in quotes here, Comey famously declared that Clinton and others at the State Department had been extremely careless in their handling of sensitive, highly classified information. He did not recommend prosecution, however, because as he reviewed the relevant precedents, he found that, in quotes, all the cases prosecute, prosecuted involved some combination of clearly intentional and willful mishandling of classified information or vast quantities of materials exposed in such a way as to support an inference or intentional misconduct, or indications of disloyalty to the United States, or efforts to obstruct justice. We do not see those things here, end quotes. So basically, he said that while there was careless activity, it was problematic, there was no intentional, you know, effort to obstruct justice or mishandle information to actually hurt the United States. It was more carelessness than nefariousness, I guess you could say. And Comey kind of wanted to stick with precedent. So I don't know if that was actually letting Hillary off the hook because it did hurt her and it made her look stupid. Um, but he was just saying, we don't want to go down this road. Now, the article also discusses how what Trump did could have been intentional, though, again, we are not sure yet. But he says it probably was not much worse and would have actually met uh, Comey's criteria to not prosecute based on precedent. And that's interesting because, well, first, I would probably agree. Like, it does, I don't know if Trump's trying to, like, bring down the nation or obstruct, well, maybe obstruct justice, but I don't know if he's, he's doing some of the other things that Comey mentions. 
The irony here, though, is that the standard Comey prescribed or the precedent that he described is no longer the law. So as president, Trump reacted to what Clinton did and made the mishandling of classified data less ambiguous to prosecute and easier to prosecute. And so Serwer writes here, Donald Trump signed a law removing any ambiguity about intent when mishandling classified information. It is not simply that Trump's behavior here was worse than Clinton's. It is that he rewrote the law to make the standard higher and then violated both the one described by Coney and the higher standard he set himself. And, you know, this is just perfect. It's so fitting of the Trump we know and love, right, is that he seems to do the one thing that can actually be done to hurt himself based on the precedent that he himself sets. Like, it's just such a hypocrisy. So, you know, then it brings up the question of, like, under this new standard that Trump set well in office, he should technically be prosecuted based on his own standard. Anyone else would be. And Hillary even, I don't know, I, I don't know, I'm not a lawyer, but maybe even Hillary could with his new standard. So then you have to do the question, the thought experiment of, do you prosecute him? I don't know. It's tough. And the last thing I'll say is that it's going to get interesting because it does seem like Trump is concerned and with the midterms approaching, his allies and other Republicans really don't want to talk about this. At first they did. They thought maybe this would help. But as things go <laughs> further down the road, it's just looking more and more stupid for Trump, I guess I would say. And it's kind of funny because you have to ask, what are the Republicans running on? They don't have a national platform. They overturned abortion and do not want to talk about that either. And they are supporting Trump, a dangerous former president, yet also don't want to talk about him. So it's like all the things that they are supporting, they actually don't want to talk about because they're not important or popular with the American people. So yeah, inflation, they should, I mean, if I was a Republican strategist, just focus on inflation, gas prices, Biden's age, stuff like that, because you do not want to talk about any of the other things that you're actually associated with right now, because it's, it's not great. It's really not great for you. Sorry, guys. And moving on, I, I want to move all the way over to China now. We're, we're leaving the United States, uh, thank God, for a little bit, even though this isn't much better. So I want to do an update on what has been occurring with the Uyghur population in Yanjing. And we've covered this back in late 2019 and then again in early 2020 on the old podcast. Uh, it's been a while. And since we've talked about the Uyghur, I guess you could say detention camps, um, violations of human rights, etc., it's crazy how little has actually changed since then. It seems like with all the problems going on since we last recorded that on the old podcast, you know, we've had a pandemic, a Russian invasion of Ukraine, energy crisis, potential looming recession, all this fun that has made it not exactly the, the focused issue right now. And there, there has been a neglected effort to really do much about these facilities. And... Sorry, I got a loud vehicle out there. And, you know, I mean, just, just talking about it, you know, the Chinese government, just for those maybe who need a refresher on this, the Chinese government basically wanted to suppress Islam and views that they saw as kind of problematic from for the CCP, which is mainly pretty secular. And the Uyghur Muslims, which I think are a Turkish people, are in detention camps. There are reports of forced sterilization, cultural genocide, and more. And basically the reason why they did this is because this Muslim population... Is not, a, is not culturally homogenous with a lot of the main Chinese population, the Han Chinese population. And many of the 10 million Uyghurs in, in Jiangjing object to this state of affairs. And some have spoken out publicly, 
and a small fraction, a small minority have become violent, right? Which I guess happens when you're angry, repressed, and don't know what to do. I'm not defending it, but it happens. And China has reacted by these minority violent uprisings against the CCP by building just a vast network of prison camps and tossing perhaps one million Uyghurs. And this was an older article. I'm, I'm looking back at my notes from the 2019 episode we did, so I'm sure it's more than one million by now. But they threw about one to two million people into these vocational training facilities, which are obviously not that. I've also read that some methods to surveil these people are also kind of being tested for broader use throughout the rest of the country. And, you know, there's just forced abortions, forced sterilizations, um, making them change their names and language and adopt Han principles. It's just a cultural genocide, in my opinion. And it's this tragic 21st century digital gulag situation. And it's also a problem because the region produces about 20% of the world's cotton, and there are concerns that some of the goods produced from this region are being done by forced labor. So, yeah, I mean, it's not the ideal situation that you like to hear about, and the world's kind of neglected mainly to talk about it for a while. And so, anyways, The Economist reports today that, in quotes, the UN's Human Rights Office released a long-awaited assessment of China's treatment of the Uyghurs in Jiangxing. It says China's actions may constitute international crimes, in particular crimes against humanity. It criticized China's vague anti-terrorism laws, which have led to, sorry, the arbitrary deprivation of liberty of Uyghurs and other Muslim groups. And it concluded that allegations of torture, forced medical treatment, and sexual violence in detention centers were credible. Of course, the Economist writes, China dismissed this report as slander and uh, blamed the U.S. for not being much better. Now, I think it's good that it's been released, don't get me wrong, but I, I have some problems here. From my gathering, the report was withheld for a decent amount of time due to Chinese pressure, and some worry that the results may be skewed by Chinese influence as well. Going into more detail, The Economist has a great article on this, and it basically discusses how this UN report took about three years to produce, and the UN's human rights chief, Michelle Bachelet, was given numerous tours throughout the region, but of course the tours were state-sanctioned, led by CCP officials, and did not show her the camps. And according to the article, Chinese officials told her that she had seen the real region. She had seen what the region is really like, and it was perfect and an emblem of liberty. Of course, they only showed her what they wanted to. Um, problematic. I, uh, like... Uh, of course, you can't write a report just based on what they show you. That's kind of against the idea of it. And apparently once the, port, sorry, the report was ready for release, she held it back for months. Again, another problem I have. The reason, according to The Economist, that she held it back was apparent pressure from China, which wanted it delayed at least until after the Olympics, the Winter Olympics that happened in Beijing in February, which I guess would make sense. Obviously, that looks bad. It was then announced that the report would be released after Miss Bachelet's visit to Chengjing, and after China had a chance to review it and comment and respond to the criticisms in the report. And side note, before I continue, maybe a country that's being investigated for cultural genocide or in detention facilities should not hold the Olympics. Hey, I'm not an expert, but asking for a friend, why let them do that? It'd be like if we now, I mean, I mean, it also reminds me of the Berlin Olympics before Hitler went crazy. Of course, we didn't know how far he was going to go at the time, but like, you know, just as a bad look, like I'll, I'll never forget watching some of the February Olympics because I had some friends in them. Um, 
and I, I just remember the opening ceremony when you have Putin and Xi sitting next to each other right before the invasion of Ukraine. Like, yeah, not left a bad taste in my mouth. But anyways, now, while there were delays and questions of Chinese influence in this report, it was finally released on Wednesday, August 31st, so two days ago, so pretty recently. The report did rely on data from China, which is obviously fine. That's what happens when you do a report inside of a country. But it also did interview victims, and it got out of just the Chinese provided data. And the economist breaks down what the report says, and I'm going to read a portion of the findings, so bear with me. It says in quotes here, The report concludes that China's actions may constitute international crimes. It criticizes China's nebulous anti-terrorism law system, under which Uyghurs and other minorities were detained for such innocuous acts as downloading WhatsApp, or contacting family abroad. I'd be, damn, I'd be locked up. It continues, appalling accounts of abuse, including rape and torture, at the detention centers in Chengjing were confirmed. Forced sterilization, coerced labor, unreasonable surveillance, and the destruction of religious and cultural heritage are just some of China's other offenses, according to the report, end quotes. So, I mean, you know, you gotta give them credit, even with Chinese influence on this report. It does corroborate practically everything that people speculated was happening. And, of course, Chinese officials have defended some of these actions on security grounds. Obviously, they say, you know, to stop terrorism, we had to do this. I, I kind of call BS on that because I will say that security is obviously important. <laughs> I am very pro-security. But when you make people give up all their rights in order to eradicate a perception of terrorism, I would argue society is no longer free. There is a fine line, a balance, I guess you could say, that must be kept. And locking up an entire population because a few of them might be terrorists is not a good idea. I mean, after 9-11, we saw how the United States went a little too far towards security over freedom. And it can be problematic. You know, for every one radical extremist that is part of the weaker population, for example, how many have they locked up? Also, does cultural genocide really work? I would probably think not. And also, on a more ironic note, China's foreign minister, Wang Yi, called Cheng Jing a shining example of human rights progress. I mean, even if this entire thing was propaganda and they, there aren't detention camps, I still would not see it as a shining example of uh, human rights progress. But let me know if I'm wrong. Maybe that's a stretch. I guess, you know, cup half full for a second here because I'm good at the cup half empty stuff on this, but ultimately this report is good news, okay? Because people were worried that it would be watered down but instead, it basically is directly stating everything that most people speculated was happening. My only issue, though, is that most of us were aware that this was happening three years ago. So it's kind of just stating the obvious at this point. Like, I, I learned nothing from this report. One step or, I guess, potential step for moving forward is that some Uyghur rights groups have given options for what the next steps can be. I guess the UN Human Rights Council is convening this month. And these Uyghur rights groups said that the UN Human Rights Council should establish a commission of inquiry and that businesses should disengage from companies that support these actions in Jiangjing. I think that would be a good step. Like, say, I don't know, like this is an example, so I'm not saying the company does this, but say like Nike is getting some clothing from this region and this reports, you know, this, this, the support sounds pretty uh, authoritative. Um, maybe Nike cuts contracts with that. I, I think that would be a step. Um, also, the, well, it's interesting. This this Uyghur rights group, um, sorry, loud vehicle again. 
Um, this Uyghur rights groups actually has criticized the UN for publishing it this late. And again, even the idea of like boycotting companies that support these actions, that's something people were talking about in 2019. And so I, I don't really know because, yeah, like, like how do we influence China to do this? They're not going to change because we pressure them to, I don't think. The, the CCP, the government, seems to view human rights as subjective. Also, it's not like we can go in there and just force them to do it without a conflict. So I, I, I'm fairly skeptical. Also, China is just going to condemn the United States and try to turn this on us. The country will argue about our past or the past of other countries like Imperial Britain. They'll say we're no bastion of human rights and that we should not be lecturing them about anything. I mean, it's, it's true to an extent that we have a horrible past, but we're not doing it now. When there's technology and transparency and cameras on the world, it's harder to lie about this stuff in the 21st century. And I noticed that China usually uses this whataboutism. You know, it's their argument for everything from Taiwan to this. Oh, we're not imperialist. You guys are imperialist. It's like, okay, but what about Tibet? That was pretty imperialist. Um, and they're, like I said, they're not always wrong. But my rule of thumb is that you never want to use whataboutism to drive your argument. And they seem to do that quite frequently with us. And that's probably because there's not a lot of substance to their argument other than just pointing fingers back at us. But yeah, there is a published report. So that is good news. That is good news. There's a record now. And I guess we can feel good about that. So maybe now that it's actually like an authoritative report, maybe now we can actually start doing things. Because for a while, it was mainly speculation just due to the darkness inside of there and not being able to get in and see. So Obviously, the UN has its problems. I don't have a lot of trust in the UN Human Rights Council, for sure. But let's just hope. Let's just hope there's change, because this is deplorable in the 21st century. Especially just the tech authoritarianism that seems to be going on there is, is worrying to me. And one last thing I'll say about China kind of staying in that region is that I was reading this morning that there's some new activity going on in the Strait of Taiwan. It's never a quiet day over there, it seems like. I was reading that Taiwan shot down a Chinese civilian drone for the first time, lovely, having fired warning shots at drones that were buzzing its outlining islands. And so a little bit of stuff heating up. There hasn't been much in the last few weeks since Nancy Pelosi's uh, lovely trip. And earlier also two American warships did pass through the Strait of Taiwan without incident. I'm sure China doesn't want to heat anything up too much, but this was also the first operation since uh, China staged those drills in response to Pelosi's visit. So strange things happening there. It's something I'm definitely keeping my eyes on because as I talked about in a podcast a few weeks ago that I recommend listening to kind of about the pride before the fall, I just kind of talked about it's going to be interesting to see how the U.S. and China interact going into the next couple decades. Anyways, uh, have a great weekend. I'll be back on Monday with a kind of special episode, you'll see. And uh, anyways, uh, have a great weekend. You can find me on Podbean, Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Spotify, YouTube, whatever else there is out there. Take care.